what do we remember from last week? Talking about revelation and preservation. A lot of us weren't here last week. So maybe, Travis, I'm talking to you. I'm not quite sure who else was here last week. What is the difference between special revelation and general revelation? General revelation was the creation. Yeah. And you can see God as the creator for that. And then uh, special revelation was scripture and, and prophets and miracles and such as that. God speaking to us specifically, right? In a, yeah. a special way. Um, he has given each one of us a, an understanding of who he is, Romans 1 tells us. But special revelation is something that is unique, um, that is able to save, whereas general revelation doesn't have the power to save, um, just merely the, the power to condemn us, to hold us accountable so that no man will be without excuse. All right, and then last week we talked about um, the, the history of the New Testament in particular and how how strong of uh, a history it has. We see here this chart we looked at last week that it wasn't that long until we have the, the oldest copy of the original manuscripts. Well, we don't have the original manuscripts. We have copies. Um, but we have them pretty far back, whereas these other examples, it took a lot longer for us to get an earlier copy, and yet these different works aren't questioned nearly like the Bible is when it comes to its authenticity. Um, so we looked at that and we watched that video on that same thing. Let's see if I can get this to work. All right. And this is where we left off last week. We know this, talking about the, the veracity and the reliability of the, the uh, different documents that we have because we found many preserved copies. And these different manuscripts of high quality have these different names that are associated with them. So papyri, um, or papyrus for just a, a singular, that's the, the earliest copies that we have of the transmission of the text. And they took that and they had actually put it on different reads. So they took out this papyrus read and um, they would make their own kind of paper out of it and it was pretty tedious work. I have a, a paragraph here from good old Wikipedia and it talks about papyrus and I'm going to read it for you and while I'm reading it just think about how we can go and take out a piece of paper and how I just handed you a piece of paper and how easy that was compared to what they had to do to get a, a piece of papyrus to, to write on. It says that papyrus is a material similar to thick paper that was used in ancient times as a writing surface. Papyrus is made from the stem of the papyrus plant, Cypress papyrus. The outer rind is first removed, and the sticky fibrous inner pith is cut lengthwise into thin strips of about 40 centimeters or 16 inches long. The strips are then placed side by side on a hard surface with their edges slightly overlapping and then another layer of strips is laid on top of them at a right angle. The strips may have been soaked in water long enough for decomposition to begin, perhaps increasing adhesion, but this is not certain. The two layers possibly were glued together while still moist. 
The two layers are hammered together, mashing the layers into a single sheet. The sheet is then dried under pressure. After drying, the sheet is polished with some rounded object, possibly a stone or a seashell or round hardwood. So that's quite a process to get a, a single piece of papyrus to take and write something on. And it's just from a, a reed, so it's from a plant. So obviously being some 2,000 years old, we don't have a ton of them that are in super fantastic shape. I mean, we have a lot, but not as many as the, the newer copies. So the papyri, they were in use for the first 300 years or so of, of church history. Um, these uncials are what kind of surplanted the, the papyri and became in use late 300, 400 to about 1000 AD. Um, and these were um, different animal skins that they would write on. Um, and it says here that they were in all caps, that early copies were taken from papyri. So just copied over and put onto these, these uncules. And they were uh, a little bit more sturdy than the papyri. And so we have uh, a few really good uncule copies. And we'll show you some of the examples of those here in a second. And then the minuscules were copies of the uncules, and that was after about 1080 or so. All right. And this, do you know what document this is, Jeremy? Is this P45? Do you know just by looking at it? Um, it's either 4566 or 72, one of those. Okay. How do you my determine that? Be, my guess would be 45. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking it's P45. So this is a copy of papyrus, a, pap a papyrus that we have that um, is labeled as P45. That's how they take and kind of categorize them so that they know the different individual papyri that are, are used and um, how they're named. So this is P45, it's a pretty decent copy that we have. Um, this next one is P46. Um, and I'm not sure of the difference between the two. Do you know offhand? I would need my apparatus for my Greek New Testament yeah. to explain that. Yeah. Oh, I, I haven't been in my office yet. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll move on a second while you're doing that. Um, there's 72. There's 72. That's P72, and this one uh, has a full copy of First and Second Peter in it, and got some decorative artwork on on that one. So all these different papyri, again, they're labeled by number. Um, P is just short for papyrus. Um, and then this next one we have here. This is an uncule, and so you see it's a little bit thicker. That's one I was telling you is made off of animal skin. And this is Codex Sinaticus. And this is a really good uncule that we have. Um, and it was just recently discovered within the last couple hundred years. And um, it contains a, a large portion of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. It's a really fascinating document. And... Here on this next slide, it has a, a project that has been worked on, and it's online. So this is codexanaticus.com, and I have it pulled up 
right here. And oh, it's not or not. Um, let me get my cursor over there, and I'll show you. Um, so this is like an actual photocopy of the actual uncial. This is John chapter one, verse one. You can go in here and you can type in um, where you want to go. You see it has large parts of the Old Testament, um, parts of the Apocrypha too. So Second Esdras and First and Fourth Maccabees, which are in our Bibles, they're part of the uh, Apocrypha, um, and it has the entire New Testament, which is pretty cool. And you can go over here. You can see the the transcript, and down here is a translation of what we would have in our English Bibles. And I thought this was pretty cool. You can click on this physical description, and they went through and each page of this uncial, they documented what it looks like. So this is parchment. Um, if there's scar tissue or veining, uh, any kind of um, something that's wrong with the actual document, they will take and they'll document that. Um, they'll kind of lay out a grid, and they'll say, well, from A2 to E4, kind of like a, a chessboard, there's some kind of scratch or a mark or something that's wrong with it. Um, they measure the thickness. They'll tell you if it's on the hair side or the flesh side of the piece of animal skin. So they've gone through and they've really documented each page of this huge uncle. It's over four. There's my wife. Hey, babe. Hi, guys. <laughs> Um, here it kind of gives a description. It says, Codex Sinaiticus is a manuscript of the Christian Bible written in the middle of the 4th century, so it's over 1,600 years old. It contains the earliest complete copy of the Christian New Testament, a handwritten text in Greek. New Testament appears in the original vernacular language of Koine Greek. The Old Testament version, known as the Septuagint. Um, and, yep, it's significant for the reconstruction of the Christian Bible's original text, the history of the Bible, and the history of the Western making is immense. So that's pretty cool. You can go online and you can check that out at codexsinaticus.org. Did you figure out P45, P46? Yeah, I'm thinking that first one that we thought was maybe P45 was probably P52. That's a, a fragment of the Gospels, and that's the earliest one that we have. Um, from about 125 AD. So, so that one's tiny then, right? That's like two inches by two inches? Yeah, but that's super early. I mean, that's like 30 years after John died. So. Yeah. And then um, yeah, P45 is from the 200s. It contains the Gospels and Acts. P46 contains Paul's letters, and it's from about 200. Um, P72 contains a lot of the New Testament. That's from like the 3rd or 4th century. But there are a lot that are from... Um, the uh, 300s and uh, anyway, one yeah. Early ones too. Yep. See, so I I don't know any of that stuff, and I don't expect you guys to remember what the different uh, pieces are. But just go away realizing that our Bible is well documented. The history is rich and deep, and um, just looking at that that website and how they have taken and documented everything of Codex Sinaiticus is just mind-blowing to me, the fact that um, all that is still there. It's preserved for us from the 4th century. Um, and this is after it's been copied several times. So it's not like that was when it was written. This It was well-established by that point. So lots of cool stuff. Any thoughts or questions up to this point?
All right. So we kind of stopped at a, a weird point last week, but we were talking about how many different copies we had, how we had uh, 6,000 copies of the, the Greek text and many more um, partials and fragments and uh, copies in different languages, Syriac and, and Coptic languages, and um, even copies of, of biblical texts from the early church fathers where they've taken, they've quoted in their writings the different, um, sometimes full portions of, of scripture. And so we have a, a well-documented history of the New Testament, but um, we have a... And a potential issue, right? Uh, an uh-oh, as Jeremy put in his slide, says, sure, we have lots of copies, but aren't there many disagreements among them? Um, we kind of got into this a little bit last week. There are thousands and thousands of copies. And so for us to expect all of them to be exactly the same would not really be super realistic. So we have a couple of differences and, and disagreements that I want to go ahead and, and look up and we'll go through them together. Uh, the first one is John 5, 4. Can I get a couple of people to look them up? Somebody who has a NIV and somebody who has a NASB. Anybody in here have an NIV? I can pull it up in an absolute. You said you do, Jerry? I think my ESP. Okay. I've got a pretty cool parallel Bible up here if we need to use it. It's got the King James, the NIV, the New Living Translation and the New American Standard. So I'll give that to Rick and she can grab anything that somebody else doesn't have. All right, so Jeremy, say so you were going to get NIV? Or, yes, I or should I have Britt get it? She's got it in front of her. Yeah, she did. She did. All right, go ahead. So Britt's going to get John 5.4 and NIV. And who's got that in the NASB? All right, Jerry. Why don't you read that to us on the NASB? We'll see if we can pick out a difference between the two different translations. There was a man who had been ill for 38 years. Okay. John 5, 4. This Bible's always weird, because since there are four different Bibles in there, you flip it at a different rate than you would a normal Bible. Yeah. Forget me. There wasn't a man who was sick for 38 years. For an angel of the Lord ran down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. All right. NIV? <laughs> Is it in there? Yeah, I'm super confused. <laughs> <laughs> Not a verse four. Is there a note there at the bottom of the page? Some manuscript no From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one it's just some there. And what did it say before that? Some manuscripts. Some manuscripts that says uh, that's for verse two though. And okay. manuscripts that side some less important manuscripts, they paralyzed and they waited for the moving of the waters. All right. They called them less important manuscripts. Okay. So NIV is quite a bit different from the NASB. The NASB included that verse, and NIV just skipped right over it completely. All right, let's look up Acts 8.37 in NLT and King James Version. Do we have any NLT people in here? Okay. 
I think we have one or two in the church, but not in here right now. And then what about King James? Who's got a King James version? I know Joseph does. Joseph's not in here. That might fall to Brittany, too. What versions are you guys using? Who's got an ASB? NASB? So everybody's NASB or ESB, huh? Okay. So both the NLT and ESV have no Acts 8.37. Okay. It's just completely missing. ESV and NLT. The New Living Translation and the English Translation. And the NIV. The NIV also omits 8.37. Does it say why, Jeremy? It, my footnote in my ESV says uh, some manuscripts add all or most of, quote, uh, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may, and he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay. Okay, I have it, but that is just saying. Okay. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Fancy, fancy. All right. So they said all these different um, translations, the ESV, NLT, NIV, said that some manuscripts contain it, but obviously they didn't think that they were reliable enough to actually include it in text. Um, they were probably later manuscripts. So there are a couple of different general ways of uh, translating. You can either go back to the, the oldest manuscripts and assume that those are the most reliable because they're the oldest, or a different method is to look at the majority of the manuscripts and say, okay, well, more of them say this, or more of them include this verse, so I'm going to go with the majority. Um, I like to go with the oldest one. I, Jeremy, the same. So we, as a church, will prefer the, the older manuscripts. So they've been around longer. It's more likely that they are correct um, because you can make a copy of something that's incorrect thousands of times, that doesn't make it correct just because there happen to be a majority of those um, copies around. All right, let's do one more. we got 1 John 5.7. It's a pretty popular one. 1 John 5.7. Somebody with an ESV and New King James. Do we have a New King James in here? Oh, Brett's got a New King James. Brit's working five translations right now. <laughs> All right, who's got that in the ESV? First John five seven. Or okay. It says, "For there are three that testify." It's a very short verse. There are three that testify. What about uh, six and eight? What what is it referring to? So First John five six through eight says. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. All right, so just listening to that, what do you think the three that testify would be referring to? 
Well, based on what Jeremy just read. Yeah, I think if we look at the context and that verse that comes after it says, this is the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. So I think it's talking about spirit and, and water and blood. And if you want to interpret what water and blood means, I mean, that's a, a different question altogether. But I think the context kind of lends to the fact that it's talking about spirit, water, and blood. Jesus came by the water and the blood. So, so the water and the blood came are testifying. Yeah, the water and the blood can't represent Father and Son because Jesus didn't. Jesus is the Son. He didn't come by the Son. So... The three that testify are referring to Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not water. Yeah. None of these are boat rock and verses that are going to you know, cripple Christianity. That's the thing that. No. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's nothing that's. Um, super vital to our doctrine. I mean, if we had this verse as it's presented in the King James or the New King James, it would be nice because it's nice and compact and it takes that same understanding that you have um, that it's talking about the Trinity, but that's really not supported textually, historically, um, by the, the documents that we have or contextually by verse 5, 7, and 8, what comes around it, or what is it, 6 and 8. Um, that seems to suggest it's talking about the water, the blood, and the spirit being testifying of Christ. We're going to talk a little bit about John chapter 5 in the sermon today and how Jesus isn't just testifying of his deity himself, but he has the the Father who testifies of him, the works that testify of him, uh, John the Baptist. So these are, are testimonies of Christ. Um, Britt, what does the New King James say in 5.7? It's a little bit longer than what Jeremy said, that these three testify. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Okay, so that is very clearly different, right? Um, That's the New King James, and the King James says the same thing. But it's very clearly documented that that was added in the 16th century by a man we're going to be looking at here in just a moment, Erasmus, uh, took and added that verse in. So you go back before Erasmus, you can see that that verse isn't there. So that kind of goes back to our whole method of what we consider authoritative. Do we take the majority or do we take older? And so a couple hundred years ago, maybe even a hundred years ago, there'd be a lot more King James versions floating around than something else. But that doesn't necessarily mean that because there are more copies that it's correct. And can I add a comment there? Yeah. Um, so the first John 5, 7 is what's called the comma tropinium, and it doesn't show up in any manuscripts until the 1500s. And it was very clearly added by a man named Erasmus um, to have a Trinity trump card verse. So uh, that one is a very, very clear difference that we know how it got there. There, there are other ones we don't know why there's a disagreement, um, but that one is very clear that Erasmus added that. Yep. All right. So we got this from Wikipedia. We're just all over Wikipedia today, which is not 
how we should typically be. Um, it says, when comparing one manuscript to another, with the exception of the smallest fragment, no two copies agree completely throughout. There has been an estimate, an estimate of 400,000 vari variations or variants among all these manuscripts from the 2nd to the 15th century, which is more than there are words in the New Testament. That, at face, sounds a bit concerning. 400,000 variants, differences within the text. More differences between all these different texts than there are words in the New Testament. Um, but we have to consider what we're talking about. What is a variant um, and what are the, the different fragments that we're comparing? Remember, we talked about the, the vast number of fragments that we're dealing with. And so when we ask ourselves, why are there so many variants, we have to think about, first of all, the, the vast number of documents that we're dealing with. You have that many documents and there are going to be some differences because we're human. God never intended for us to uh, write down stuff perfectly when we're copying his text. It's not like you go from writing down a, a recipe or a math problem and we're being fallible men and then we decide to write down a, a Bible verse and suddenly we're infallible and we're unable to make a, a mistake or an error. We're still fallible men and that's, that's understood. By candlelight. <laughs> yeah. And we have somebody chasing after you, trying to persecute you. And um, remember, you're writing on this papyri, which you had to, maybe you went through and, and made this papyri yourself. Maybe you bought it from somebody. But completely different world. It's not like copy and paste on a computer. Uh, you're taking and maybe dipping a pen in some ink and having to look back and forth. So, so many different things we have to consider when we're talking about these variants. And so we need to consider, first of all, how a variant is defined. Any small difference is documented as a variant. You leave one letter off of the end of a word, and that's documented as a variant. You switch around Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, that's a documented variant. But like Travis said, it doesn't affect the, the truth of what the text is saying. But it goes down as one of those 400,000 variants. And if that is copied by... Uh, another source, then that's another documented variant. Um, and you just pile these up. And so you look at that number, 400,000, and that's daunting. But you actually consider what they're considering a variant. And any little minuscule difference is a variant. Um, yes. Oh, let's go this way. Um, again, like Jeremy mentioned, think of the grueling process, what it means to, to write down and to copy this. Um, and oftentimes it would be pressed for time. Remember we looked at Galatians and how Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia. Um, these people are going to want to get this message out to the other churches, so they're not going to sit there and um, very tediously have the time to, to copy this out. You know, They're going to want to get that copy made so it can get onto this other church. They are facing early church persecution, worrying about people coming after them, trying to, to put them to death. Um, and that would be quite stressful. You and I having a whole week to sit down and copy a couple chapters of the Bible, we could still make mistake after mistake, but that's not the environment that this was being done in. Uh, think of how you read and how when you're looking back and forth, again, not copy and paste, but looking back and forth trying to copy something down and your eyes can jump. And that happens all the time. That's a common variant. And um, 
people who are textual critics recognize that. And so if you're writing and you say, well, Brittany slept and Travis jumped and Jeremy rode a bike, um, you can, well, put it into the infinitive, right? So Brittany was sleeping, Travis was jumping, and Jeremy was riding a bike or biking, we'll say biking, um, you could look back and you can see the, the end of the word, the ing, and it could be very easy to, to skip out on Travis um, and just say, okay, well, Brittany was sleeping. You look back and see ing, and you think, oh, I just finished writing about Travis. And then you go on and you, you write about Jeremy and what he was doing. Um, so you look at the end of the word and it could match, and that happened often when you were copying down because you were reading as a fallible man. Um, think of how you think, just sitting around and thinking, oh, well, this guy just keeps going on and on about this textual criticism, and I just can't wait to get home and eat my sandwich. Um, and if you're taking notes, you might write down the word sandwich instead of textual variant, right? Um, because that's what's in your mind, that's what you're thinking. I've done that a number of times when I'm texting somebody, right? I'm trying to, to text and talk to somebody, and then Brittany will tell me, hey, will you remember to pick up milk from the store? And I'll type milk. Like, hey, let's go out later and milk. Well, that doesn't really make sense, but our fallible minds think fallibly. So that isn't unique to us, but also happened in the first, second, third centuries when people were making these copies. And then again, how you listen. Um, same kind of concept. Somebody's talking to you and, and saying something to you, and we are prone to make mistakes. Um, we, we don't hear things correctly, and oftentimes somebody would be reading off the, the text of somebody else while they're writing it down to try to avoid some of these other errors, but we don't hear perfectly, and so they could make mistakes that way as well. And then how we assume. It could be very easy for somebody to be reading what they're writing down and to disagree with that because we all have assumptions, right? We we presume on the text oftentimes. Um, and if you're doing that while you're copying, if you read something that you think is an error, or you think, okay, well, the last guy who wrote this down, he messed that up, so I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna fix it for him. And in reality, you could be the one who's messing it up. And I mean, a lot of the copyists have heard things before and have memorized uh, stories or verses. Mm -hmm. So think of something like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of, or but the um, wages of sin is death, but the, no, I'm not, not going to remember the verse. The gift. Uh, is eternal life in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? Or which mm -hmm. one is it? A lot, most translations say Christ Jesus, but if you were to copy that and write Jesus Christ, that counts as a variant. Yeah. So does it change anything? No. Uh, but is it a variant? Yes. Yep. Yeah, Jerry. You said that any variant that is copied is counted as another variant, even though it's the correct copy of the variant? I believe so. Yeah, so they, they disagree. And so, yeah, that adds up to that daunting number. Yeah, so it's, it's disagreeing with something, it's a variant. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So, hearing that, you know, the intention of that number is to make you have no confidence in it at all. But uh -huh. The fact that there is, to me, the biggest amazing thing is that 
the King James is translated by one man, pretty much. The vast percentage of it was. With the limited number of sources. Yes, in the 15, 1600s. And so when we find all these new ones since, in the 400 years since, we haven't had to rewrite our Bibles at all. Mm-hmm. We just had to correct a few errors here and there. We didn't have to correct 15,000. Yeah. That's, that's a malicious number to be using. And that's, and that's why it said in that paragraph from Wikipedia, 400,000 variants, that's more than there are words in the New Testament. That's how they could get to that number. It's very biased, right? And they're definitely trying to get across an idea about the Bible. Yeah, I went through and when I was when I got that quote from the papyrus, reading on papyrus from Wikipedia, you'd think, oh, you'd see all kinds of references to the Bible and biblical text. There was nothing. Um, but these other different things, you know, Homer's Iliad and other different documents, that's what they would refer to. That's what they would mention. So you've got to watch out for people's biases. We all approach stuff with uh, a pre-understanding of, of things, and that will show through, just as it does with Wikipedia, which is, again, why we shouldn't reference it often. It's sola scriptura, the Bible that is our ultimate authority, and we need to realize that. I would vote against that, and I hope everybody else would, too. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Oh, I was going to say, too, that that man in that video last week, he mentioned that, that we have this, this great number of um, manuscripts, these, these documented um, writings that we can go back to, these texts. And the, the world has really taken that, and they've used that strength that Christianity has, and they've turned it into a weakness, tried to turn it into a weakness by pointing out all the different variants. But it's not honest in the way that they've done that. So realizing the difference between a, a true variant and you know just a, a simple mistake isn't always done in an honest fashion. Um, and then again, lastly, we already mentioned this, think of the number of copies, just the vast amount of copies that there are. And it should be expected that there are going to be a number of variants. Think of all the copies. Again, bolded. All right. God has not promised that copies will be perfect. He has not, in other words, promised to keep all copyists from error. The process of copying is a fallible process. Sit down for yourself. Try to copy the first chapter of Genesis. Most likely you will make a few mistakes. There is no passage in Scripture nor any biblical principle that promises otherwise. That's from John Frame. So... Again, we're men, we're going to make a mistake, and God hasn't intended to keep us from making that mistake, but he has used this great number of copies that he has um, preserved for us through this method of copying to give us uh, understanding that what we have before us is trustworthy and reliable. All right, back to Travis's point. Over 99% of the variants don't affect the meaning of the text at all. Um, just like Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, that doesn't affect the meaning. And even in those situations where it does affect the meaning, that's not going to affect the doctrine. There is no doctrine that we have in Christianity that is based on a text that is in question. It's not like we come to this idea of faith alone, for example, or of the Trinity, 
based on something that is in question. If we had that first John 5, 7 verse, that would be nice to be able to say, look, there are these three that agree, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's all right there. And these three are one. And we don't have that. But we have a number of other verses that talk about how Jesus is God, talk about how the Holy Spirit is God, talk about how there is one God. So this doctrine of the Trinity isn't based upon some kind of textual variant. The vast majority of variants are obvious errors. It's not something that is in question. It's something that, um, again, we, we have older texts we can go back to and we can compare and we can see where somebody made the mistake and we can infer as to how they made that mistake. Um, so again, if we're working our way back here, Britt starts off writing down a note and passes it back to David and Jerry, right, David? Um, and Jerry makes a mistake, but David gets it right, and they pass it back, and then Melissa copies a mistake that David has. It's able to trace it back and say, oh, Jerry, you messed up, man. I'm sorry. Um, but this line keeps going. That's that's true. We can tell, okay, well, that goes back, because Brittany wrote down the, the right version of what she was trying to write down. It was copied correctly and incorrectly. And then you just multiply that on a mass scale, and it's a lot easier to identify where the mistakes come from. So... Most of the errors are obvious errors, and we know where they originated from. There's a textual quandary, like a, a true textual something we're not sure about, about once every three pages in Scripture. So um, flip three pages in your Bible, and there's something we're not sure. Okay, well, is that supposed to be A or B? Um, where does that come from? And we're not sure. Once every three pages, which is quite, quite small, quite rare. And again, it's not surrounding any core doctrine to the Christian faith. Any comments or questions? What's quandary again? King James word again? Okay. <laughs> Fancy <laughs> speak, right? What is it? We're, something we're unsure about. <laughs> Next week. <okay. laughs> Alrighty. So what do we do with these legitimately difficult variants that we find once every three pages or so? It's something we need to consider. Again, we're dealing with the, the Word of God. We need to consider that. We need to pick it up a little bit. Alright. Because of God's singular care and providence uh, over the process of transmission, we now have in Scripture all the personal words that God intended to say to us today. Again, from John Frame. A quick journey through history. Here we have the Septuagint. Anybody know what Septuagint is? Very. Greek translation. During the 400 years of silence. Um, and yeah, that's abbreviated. I can't see it down there because my computer's set up weird. It's abbreviated LXX, which stands for 70 in Roman numerals. So 50, 10, 10 adds up to 70. And there were believed to be 70 translators who helped on that work, translating the Hebrew into the, the Greek, which happened before Christ came. That's what Christ would be using when he was quoting scripture. Old Testament scripture. Were you going to say something? Well, they didn't include the Apocrypha. And it's what Jesus yep. and the apostles quoted. Huh? Yeah, but they didn't ever quote from the Apocrypha. So that's one of the reasons why we don't use the Apocrypha. All right, this dude here is Jerome. Jerome was around in the 4th century, 5th century. Um, and 
he took and uh, he translated the Old and New Testament and the Apocrypha into Latin. And he came up with what we know as the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate was used for centuries, about almost a, a millennium. Um, that was the go-to text. And it was Latin. And not everybody spoke Latin. In fact, not a lot of people spoke Latin. But that was what the, the Bible was preserved in um, from Jerome's work in the 5th century. And people were really reliable on other people to tell them what that text means. I mean, as time went on and um, as Christianity spread, people became dependent on others to, to translate them, to translate for them and to tell them what God had said to them through the Latin. This guy is Erasmus, and we already mentioned Erasmus in the 16th century. He first wanted to make uh, his own Latin copy of the Latin Vulgate. He said something to the effect of um, if, if people want to hear from God, they should hear from him in decent Latin. So he wasn't a big fan of Jerome's translation. He said they deserve to hear some good Latin from the Lord, so I'm going to write my own Latin text. And from there he went and he made a a copy of a Greek New Testament. He was the first one to really try to compile all of the New Testament into Greek and put it all into one form from all these different copies, all the different papyri and uncials that um, were in these different places and different forms. He wanted to compile it into one cohesive um, Greek New Testament. Which at that time was not a lot of manuscripts. Yeah. Yeah, he was working primarily with six different sources that he had and um, trying to put them into one Greek New Testament. Okay, I was just clarifying. So he took all the like, original 11 original pieces and made a cohesive Greek. So he was doing the same thing, this textual criticism. He was going through and he was saying, okay, well, these two differ at this point, but um, most likely it would be this word or this phrase. And again, when you're just dealing with six copies, you don't have a whole lot of... Uh, trial and error. That's more akin to our example here, right? Well, Jerry messed up, but David didn't, so who's right? Um, and maybe you don't have the copy that Brittany wrote. So when you only have six copies, you're really limited in your ability to differentiate. Um, and so it wasn't the greatest, um, greatest work because he was dealing with limited resources. Um, he did go through, he did fix over 600 errors that the Vulgate made it, but um, again, you're dealing with a limited number of sources, and there's only so much that you're able to do. Um, let's see. Okay, so Erasmus, um, he came along after somebody else was working on a, a full Bible translation. They were trying to translate both the Old and New Testament into Greek, and um, they wanted to to get both before they just released the New Testament. And so they were kind of holding off. And this was around uh, 512 that they were doing that. He came along, or not 512, 1512. He came along in 1514, and he decided that he was going to start on his Greek New Testament. And he wanted to release that before they released their full copy of the Old and New Testament. And so he went to the Pope, and he got permission to, to get that published for... 400, or for four years 
um, kind of holding out these other people who were wanting to publish a full Bible. So they weren't able to publish until he had had his published for four years. Um, and so he was kind of in a rush to get that out. So not only was he dealing with a limited number of manuscripts, but he was trying to beat these other guys to the punch so that he could be the first to translate the New Testament into Greek and get that published. And so he did that in 1516, and for the next four years, this other group wasn't able to publish their work, which they finally did in 1520 with both the Old and New Testament. And there were a lot less errors in their work because they were able to spend a lot more time focusing on that. And they weren't as rushed as Erasmus was. Yes? They were into one Greek text, all the Greek texts they had, you were saying they or did you mean that they were translating from the Greek into Latin? No, they were working on Greek as well. So they were translating from the Latin into the, the Greek. Well, not from the Latin. I mean, they might reference the Latin, which Erasmus did a lot. Um, he would go back and he would reference the Latin Vulgate when he was translating into Greek, which doesn't make a whole ton of sense to go from Greek to Latin back to Greek. You're going to come up with some errors. Um, but when you're going back to the original, back to the Greek, you're able to get a lot closer to what the original author had intended. Um, and so, yeah, this, this other group, they had the Septuagint, so they didn't have a whole lot of work to do with the Old Testament, um, but they wanted to release it as a full compilation of the Old and New Testament, and Erasmus beat them to the punch. But they still, that was in Greek, so there was an extremely limited audience. Yes. Well, the, the intention wasn't necessarily for the people to be able to read the Greek, but for this to be translated out into different languages. Um, last week I read you that, that quote. I have it on the back of your page. Erasmus said, and this was in his Greek New Testament, at the, at the front of it, he said that, would that these were translated into each and every language, would that the farmer might sing snatches of scripture at his plow, and that the weaver might hum phrases of scripture to the tune of his shuttle, that the traveler might lighten with stories from scripture the weariness of his journey. And so he wanted other people to take and, and use this work of the full Greek New Testament to translate into other languages, which people actually did. Um, we'll talk about, well, yeah, Luther published his German New Testament in 1522. Um, and that was based largely off of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. William Tyndale in 1525 printed the first New Testament um, from the original languages um, into English, and he was burned in 1536 as thanks for his work on that. Um, and, and many others came along, and they used Erasmus's work to translate into different languages. So as I said, he went and he got approval from the Pope this is the Pope, Pope Leo X. And after getting approval from the Pope, he then turned around and said, well, thank you, Pope. You let me be the first guy to translate the Greek New Testament, so I'm going to dedicate this to you. Um, and that's where we get the Textus Receptus, um, which is pretty big nowadays. There are some people who only use the, the Textus Receptus, the, the TR, and they refuse to look at any other work when consulting textual criticism, which again was based off of six different works, six different manuscripts, 
crunch for time. Um, not to say we shouldn't be thankful for its work, but we have a lot more to work with now, going back and looking at the great number of manuscripts that we have come across now. This is Martin Luther. Been talking about him quite a bit lately in our Sola series. And again, he took and he used that for his translation of the German Bible. All right, so we have, um, what's his name, Jerome? Not Jerome, Erasmus. Erasmus. Um, he compiles the, the Textus Receptus, right? And then he's doing this for Pope Leo. Um, dedicates it to him, and it's taken and used by not just Martin Luther, but a number of other people. But Martin Luther in particular is the one who really sparks the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And the whole point of the Protestant Reformation um, is to fight against the Pope and the Catholic Church and to say, well, we don't agree with you. We disagree on these very core, very primary issues. And in return, Pope Leo takes and excommunicates Luther because he's fighting against the Pope because of the whole Reformation process. So uh, kind of funny how that works out. It was a, a text that was dedicated to the Pope that ends up working against him and sparking this whole Reformation. All right, so we take this, um, the, the Latin Vulgate, and it, again, for about a thousand years, it was the standard for the church. That's what they used, that's what they went to, um, and they were taking and making all these different copies of the Latin Vulgate. And then um, comes along the Textus Receptus, and that kind of supplants the Latin Vulgate, and that becomes the standard that's used for uh, a couple hundred years. And Textus Receptus is what people look to, what they use, and that's taken and it's translated into English, and that happens in 1611. That's where we get our King James Bible, and this now becomes the standard for, for many people, especially around here. There are a lot of people who refuse to use anything except for the King James Bible. Uh, it used to be once upon a time you go out to do street evangelism, you have to take the King James Bible because anything else is not seen as authoritative. But again, you go back to the very beginning in this Latin Vulgate, um, there weren't a whole lot of copies around back when that was made. Um, and the Textus Receptus in 1600 made off of six manuscripts um, and then translated into English, and that was the primary source for the, the King James Bible. And so we have now all these different copies of these that are going around, but that doesn't mean that that's the most authoritative source that we have. We now have a number of different Bibles um, that that we can take and we can compare and we can, these are are going back to the, the greater majority of Greek manuscripts that we have. And they are uh, a lot more studied, a lot more reliable, I think, than some other translations, not that those translations are bad. Um, pretty language, right? But fancy, fancy language. Um, but it's maybe not as reliable as some of the the translations we have today. Yeah. I think it is good to admit that we have far too many English translations. Mm -hmm. Yes. The reason why we have so many English translations is because we have a bunch of Christian publishers. And every Christian publisher has to have its own translation because Zondervan that uh, created the NIV um, 
they are going to charge people to reprint the NIV. So they'll charge Crossway, if Crossway, who does the ESV, if Crossway wanted to print their own versions of the NIV, they would have to pay Donovan for those rights. And so Crossway said, well, we'll just make our own. And they made the ESV. And then on and on it goes. So the reason why we have so many English translations in America, particularly, is because it's kind of turned into a business. And that's to our shame. But yep. it is, it's right to admit that. Yep. And these different publishers, again, they have different ways of going about their understanding of the text. So do they go for the older manuscripts, or do they prefer the majority text? Um, and then different ways of translating. So there are two primary ways of translating. So there's a, a literal dynamic way of translating, which means that the translators really want to get a word-for-word -word understanding of the text. Um, again, that's literal dynamic. And so they realize this is Theonusos, this is God-breathed. We want to get each word as he gave it and in this revelation and preserved it for us. Whereas there's a different way of approaching the text, which is a, a dynamic equivalent, where they're trying to get a thought-for-thought thought out of the text more than word-for-word. Word. And in doing that, you really have to be interpretive in order to get a thought-for-thought thought translation. So you're trying to say, well, this is what it means. And even those who are doing, who are approaching the text with a, a literal dynamic framework, they have to be interpretive at some point. So if a publisher decides that they want to go through and they want to capitalize all the, the names of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, they have to be committed to that. And when you come across a text where maybe it's ambiguous, it's talking about spirit, but you're not sure if it's talking about the Holy Spirit or the spirit of man, um, if they made the decision to capitalize those those names and they have to interpret at that point, is this talking about the Holy Spirit or is this talking about the human spirit? So, yeah. Um, who publishes and their worldview really comes into play as well. Uh, bottom line, English translations are based on different textual philosophies, business decisions. There's no one perfect translation, which is why it's good to compare. Uh, a Bible like this is helpful where you have four that are right there. Even more helpful is Bible software, where you can have just a, a number of texts that you can go to. And you can see what the ESV says versus the King James versus the NASB. There was never a time when God's people got together to make a decision as to what book should be in and what book should be out. We need to realize that it was a, a recognition in response to people attacking the Bible um, when they got together 325 and they said, well, this is the canon. They weren't declaring it to be canon. They were saying um, this has already been recognized for centuries now, and we need to codify that. God's people have always recognized his authority in special revelation and preserved those writings, its end being the English translation that we have in front of us today. Um, we should be very grateful for men who put in the hard work to, to give us what we have today. So hopefully we have a better understanding of revelation and preservation, how we got our Bible. We are over time. So I'm going to pray real quick and then we'll take a break. God, we do thank you for your holy word, that you have inspired it, you have revealed it to your apostles and prophets and preserved it for us by the, the tedious work of faithful men. God, help us to not take that for granted. Help us to live by the, the truth of your word that is sharper than any double-edged sword. Help us to take that out, to share it with others, 
and to boldly proclaim the, the truth of the gospel as you've revealed it to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.